thanks everyone for attending today's IR Insights webinar on migration and employment law. My name is Alexandra Tyrrell, I also go by Ali, and I'm a um, managing associate in the employment and safety team in Melbourne. And I'm very pleased to have um, my colleague join today, Deborah Mercurio, who is um, from the Adelaide office and she practices in dispute resolution and immigration. So very grateful to have Deb come along um, and talk to us today about migration and what employers really need to, to know and be thinking about um, when employing foreign workers. Um, as always, we have a, a chat box for any questions that you might have. So feel free to pop them in there. And if we can answer them during the webinar, we will. Otherwise, we'll make an effort to get back to you afterwards. Um, so before we get into the content, I just want to play our acknowledgement of country. Nangamanlari, Anantimanya, and on behalf of Dentons and everyone here today, I would like to recognise the stories, traditions, and living cultures of the land on which we meet. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their continued connections to land, sea, and community. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Nangamanladi. Okay, so as I'm sure that everyone is aware and everyone's read over the last few years, there's a skill shortage in Australia and really that means that visas and immigration are important for the Australian economy and are going to continue to be. So a really good opportunity for us to have Deb here with us today to talk about some of the, the relevant matters. So we're going to go through a few different topics. We're going to talk about the future of work, what does it look like in terms of the, the skills shortage and what needs to be done to address that? What do employers really need to know about, um, about applying for visas and employing um, foreign workers? I'll talk a bit about the um, relevant Australian employment laws and some recent legislative changes. We're also going to talk a bit about visa costs um, and also finish off with providing you some tips um, to consider when employing foreign work workers and also talk about um, Denton's migration offerings and what we can assist you with. So Deb, um, as I said, I think we've all read about um, how Australia has been suffering a skills shortage. And I understand that um, very timely, there was a white paper released on Monday in relation to jobs and opportunities. So what are your thoughts on the skills shortage and in Australia and how it's going to be addressed? Thanks, Sally. Yeah, that's right. There was the um, government's employment white paper was released on Monday um, and it does address and discuss the, the skills shortage that we've been suffering for the uh, last few years. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of the people on the call um, on this webinar today um, are, are feeling it as well in their own workplaces. Um, that's, you know, in part as a result of our border closures because of COVID. Uh, a lot of uh, visas weren't being processed during that time, particularly the temporary uh, skills shortage visas. So that has contributed to that. Uh, the white paper recognises that the workforce shortages are a, a key to holding back businesses and our economy. And while some of the shortages are easing in some sectors, uh, there are others that need um, further growth. So 
as we've also been hearing, unemployment remains at record lows. Uh, but the government estimates there are around 3 million people in Australia who want to work or at least want to work more hours. So the white paper uh, states that it's it's prompted the government to reconsider how it um, defines full employment and how that's measured. Now, I think there will still be the current measure um, for the purposes of the Reserve Bank, but the, the government is looking at the uh, revising the definition so it would take into account underemployment and underutilisation. Uh, fundamental to the government's uh, skills, addressing the skills shortage will be not only um, skilling uh, Australians and investing in domestic skills and training, but complementing it with targeted migration. So that's uh, some of the things that we'll discuss today. And the white paper expressly acknowledges the role that migration will play in um, addressing those skills shortages, but not as a substitute, uh, but rather just to complement the local skills uh, offering. There was earlier this year, uh, the migration system final report, which was a review of the migration system that was released in March and a substantial document that provided for a whole lot of whole raft of uh, recommendations to revive, well, to completely overhaul in some respects, the migration system, recognizing it's currently complex and expensive. And uh, a lot of um, uh, participants in the webinar today who may have gone through this for their own employees will concur, I'm sure. Uh, the occupation list that we'll also discuss later today is out of date and doesn't necessarily reflect the current skills requirements in the market. The temporary skilled uh, migration income threshold uh, was too low. It had not been indexed since 2013 and labour market testing is not necessarily effective for identifying shortages in the market. The government out, uh, responded with a uh, an outline of its strategy in April of 2023, which was only a few pages, and the final strategy is due to be released later this year. So while um, they did immediately increase the temporary skilled migration income threshold from 53,900 to 70,000, that came in on the 1st of July, we don't really have an indication of what else is necessarily coming, except some of the, the things have been hinted at in the white paper. Um, on the next slide, we've got uh, a link to the uh, white paper if anyone's interested and following this webinar, we will circulate that link if you want to download it um, for your own interest. It is a 264 page document, so you might just want to go to the sections that interest you. Uh, but in short, the future reforms for migration um, in terms of employment are to better target skilled migration make the process simple and faster, uh, mainstream temporary skilled pathways to bring in core skills, uh, addressing some of the other issues to employ, um, to improve employment outcomes and conditions for international students to transition to that skilled work. Uh, and also have a look at the uh, improved um, occupation list in partnership with Jobs and Skills Australia and looking at the permanent skilled uh, visa offerings as well to revise all of that. So that at least hints at some 
changes that are upcoming and hopefully for the better. Today, I will discuss what needs to happen in terms of processes as at the current date, and that's all we can we can do at this stage. We don't know when the um, revised strategy will come out, except that it's vaguely been tipped for later this year or what that's going to, to involve. But hopefully, if you do need to employ foreign workers in the years ahead, at least next year, there might be some positive changes coming your way. Yeah, thanks for that, Deb. It sounds like there's a lot happening and going to happen in um, in the immigration area, much like the employment law space. It's going to be a busy few years. Um, but in your view, Deb, what should businesses know about the process of applying for a work visa? There are quite a number of different work visas. So the approach that we take and what you should know is really consider carefully what the objectives of the business are and the business needs. And also then we'll look at the visa applicants uh, circumstances and the occupation that you're looking to fill. There are both permanent and temporary visas. And I might just outline some of the temporary visas that are the most commonly used. One of them, which I think most people would be familiar with is the temporary skills shortage visa, which is the subclass 482. That replaced the previous 457 visa, which was largely the same, but has had some tweaks to it and, and occupation changes. There are two streams in that uh, visa, being the medium term and the uh, short term, and that depends on the occupation. And if it's in the short term stream, that will be a two-year visa. If it's in the medium to long-term uh, stream, it'll be the four-year visa. There are other visas as well, which uh, are similar, but have a larger range of um, occupations that, that can be applied for. So they come under the regional visas, which is the subclass 494 and the 491. Businesses could also use what's uh, called a temporary work short stay specialist visa. That's a subclass 400. And that is to fill any short-term gaps that's needed for a, an Australian business with very highly specialised requirements. So normally that's granted for up to a period of three months, but with a business case, you can get someone from overseas for up to six months on that particular visa. And there is also a temporary activity visa which is a subclass 408 and that has a number of different streams for different events and circumstances and that's quite a flexible one uh, in terms of what you might be considering doing and uh, addresses some of the things that the other visas might not. So one of the key ones of late uh, was the Australian government endorsed events and one of the endorsed events was COVID-19 so there were a range of visas that were issued under that, that particular subclass uh, for COVID under the Australian government endorsed events uh, stream. That is being phased out uh, and will completely cease by February of next year. Uh, but there are other activities as well under that for sporting activities, religious work, research activities, entertainment uh, activities as well. So we've done quite a number of the subclass 408s for um, film and, and uh, other productions 
here in Australia. The common feature of them is that the employee or the contractor needs to be highly specialised. Uh, and the um, some of the other regional visas that I was talking about before that might open up uh, some different visa subclasses depending on where the person is going to be working and, and what they'll be doing. Uh, when we talk about regional for migration purposes, it doesn't mean out in the country. Uh, most locations outside of Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane are classified as regional or designated regional areas for migration purposes. So I'm based in Adelaide, for example, all of South Australia is considered regional for the purposes of the Migration Act. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind as well is that um, the occupation will often determine what visa you can apply for. So that's another consideration. If you uh, have an engineer, for example, we'll need to find that particular occupation and, and find out which the specific type of engineer, if it's a mechanical engineer, for example, we'll put that into the uh, skills shortage search list, come up with a code, and then there'll be a series of uh, visas that can be applied for. And then we can determine from there what the most appropriate visa would be. Broadly speaking, most of the sponsored visas will have three stages where the employer needs to be approved as a standard business sponsor first. Uh, the, there is a nomination then of the employee and there needs to be labour market testing for the, the subclass 482, which is very specific uh, unless an international trade obligation applies. Uh, the international, one of the more recent international um, trade um, agreements that have come into force is the one with the UK. So that's now, now that that's in force, uh, that's applicable as an international trade obligation, which would exempt uh, the labour market testing in relation to a UK citizen. Uh, so that's been a positive move this year. Uh, so that's the second stage, it's nomination of the, the uh, employee for the particular occupation and, and uh, position. And then there is the visa application itself for the employee and the family members. So for 482, uh, as an example, you can see it's quite a process that, that you need to go through. Contrast that with the subclass 408, the sponsor might need to be a temporary activity sponsor only if the period of time is going to be for over three months, for example. The four, subclass 400, which is the temporary specialist visa, there won't be that process. It's just the visa application, but the employer may need to provide some sort of supporting letter. So it will depend on the business's objectives, needs, timelines as to which visa would be best. And we'll work through with you which one might work best to, to suit all of the circumstances. The, um, the other thing to bear in mind is the, the government costs and charges, which are obviously in addition to any legal fees that, that might be incurred in preparation of all of these applications. The 482, um, for example, also has, apart from each application stage, 
which has the government charge for making the application itself. It also has what's called the um, the Australian Skilling Australians Fund levy, uh, and that is a levy that's paid on an annual basis. Well, it's paid on an annual basis in terms of how long the visa is, but it's paid at the time of nomination and depends on the, the amount um, that the company's annual earnings are. So it's $1,200 if the company has annual earnings of less than $10 million and $1,800 uh, per year if the company has earnings over $10 million. So what you end up with is for a four-year visa under a um, subclass 482 visa is an additional cost when you actually make the nomination of $7,200. So we will provide you with all of the, the costs ahead of time, but we, that's one of the things that, that should be borne in mind as well in terms of the, the process. There is quite a cost that needs to be considered a, an investment in the employee. If you need somebody highly skilled to come into your business, um, so we will work through that with uh, with employers because it's not always easy to navigate around all of these different visa types. And in fact, I was just on a call this morning uh, with a, a client discussing potential strategies and options and combining potentially either having a, a subclass 400 visa just to see, which is this, you know three to six month visa, just to see what might transpire in terms of what they need to do in Australia and then transitioning to a 482 should the business requirements needed in future. So a whole plan can be put together, uh, but it is important just to bear in mind that there are different considerations at each step of the process and different processes for each visa. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be quite complex and lots of decisions to make along the way. And I'm not sure whether you can answer this, but what sort of time periods or timelines are you seeing to go through these stages? Can you say with any general, you know, general comments or is it very fact dependent? It's a combination of both. We have had, uh, the government does put on its website processing times. And up until a few weeks ago, it was in increments of 25%. Uh, so it said, 25% of applications for this particular uh, visa and this particular process are processed within X days, 50% within X days, et cetera. A few weeks ago, they've taken that all off and only put uh -huh. the 90% mark, which is what I always call the worst case scenario uh, mark. I try to benchmark around 50% because that at least allows time for any further information that they want but we try and make sure that we get it to the lowest possible time by putting in all of the relevant information to start with um, but in terms of current processing the processing times for the 482 particularly around nominations and visas have come down considerably this year and I think that's a policy uh, um, response taken by the, the government earlier this year to just push through that backlog of visas that were not getting processed over the COVID border closure period. Uh, and that was quite significant. So we're getting nominations through uh, within days as opposed to weeks and months that they had been previously. Uh, similarly with, with visas 
as well. So they're coming through reasonably quickly. Um, and some of the, you know, the subclass 400s, for the most part, we've always had those come through reasonably quickly as well. They'll come through within um, you know, a week or two at this stage. We've had some come through within a day or hours, but I guess it just depends on the on the day, on the circumstance, and when the delegate picks it up. Um, but at the moment, they're, they're coming through within about a week or so. Uh, but it, it does depend on a case-by-case -case basis, and that's something that the government does, um, the Department of Home Affairs does make clear on its website, and we make clear to clients. The processing times do depend on whether um, they need more information, and that's the bottom line. So that's why I say the 90% Processing times is the worst case scenario and means that it they've come back to you under Section 56 of the Act saying we need more information. Yeah, and I think we had a chat, Deb, about how, um, and I think you might talk about this later, how it's really important to have all the information you can up front to, I guess, be as prepared as you can and put in as much information as you can. So I guess you can streamline that process if, if possible. Absolutely. It's what we call a decision-ready application uh, so that when somebody picks up the application, everything is there to be able to grant the visa. Uh, so we will ask uh, employers and visa applicants for a lot of information because we're trying to make sure that we've got everything right up front. They don't come back. Now, it doesn't mean we can overcome every Section 56 request. Uh, and uh, sometimes we won't because it'll depend on the delegate being perhaps a little bit nitpicky in terms of the form of some of the information or if we do have to address some uh, other specific issues like if the person has a criminal background or, or something like that. Uh, but by and large, it then at least reduces the time period overall as, as best as we possibly can. Yeah. And um, and then there's the nomination application declaration as well that, that the employers have to make. Yeah, so there are a series of declarations that the sponsor uh, has to make, um, particularly in the nomination application relating to the, the applicant. Uh, and in fact, at each stage, every applicant sponsor or visa applicant needs to make declarations. But there is as part of the nomination application the employer is required to make a declaration that the contract complies with all applicable requirements imposed by Commonwealth, state or territory law relating to employment and, if applicable, uh, including the national employment standards within the meaning of the Fair Work Act. So that's something that they specifically need to, to make a declaration about. So, Ali, could you talk us through what that means practically so what employers should be bearing in mind when they make that declaration what they should know yeah so i think um i guess to simplify it um australian laws employment laws will generally apply to um visa holders or foreign um workers um and that's because the fair work act as being one employment law applies to national system employers and national system employees um, and a national system employee is someone who's employed by a national system employer. So that's not a very helpful definition. Um, 
what's a national system employer that can be complex but generally speaking if you know the employer is an Australian entity and they're employing a visa holder in Australia the Fair Work Act is going to apply you know in some circumstances foreign corporations employing people here um, can also have the Fair Work Act apply so I think in the vast majority of situations um, visa holders are going to have rights and entitlements under the the Fair Work Act um, being, you know, one employment related piece of legislation. So that will be important for businesses to remember and understand when they're making these declarations. Um, the Fair Work Act is, is quite large and obviously contains a lot of um, rights and entitlements. But just to touch on a few, there's the National Employment Standards, which are a set of various standards, minimum standards that apply to everyone that's covered by the Fair Work Act. Um, so they're things like annual leave, sick leave, um, you know, maximum weekly hours that can be worked, unpaid parental leave, notice of termination, redundancy pay, etc. There's a list of them and they apply to everyone. Um, but by virtue of the Fair Work Act, a visa holder may also be covered by a modern award or an enterprise agreement, and they're instruments that provide terms and conditions over and above the national employment standards. So they might say that someone is to be paid overtime or penalty rates or allowances or a higher hourly rate. Under the Fair Work Act, um, visa holders will also have the ability to bring various um, disputes or claims against the employer. So that might be a general protections claim where they argue they've been dismissed for an unlawful reason or for a discriminatory reason. They could bring a bullying claim. They could bring a sexual harassment claim, which is a relatively new jurisdiction under the Fair Work Act. Um, and by virtue of being covered by the Fair Work Act, they'll have rights to be paid um, minimum rates, whether that's national minimum wage or whether that is a higher rate of pay under a modern award or an enterprise agreement. And, you know, about 10 years or so ago, um, underpaying migrant workers was a pretty big topic in, in the media and the Fair Work Ombudsman was looking into it a lot. Um, and one case that they reported on quite a lot involved um, the 7-Eleven franchisees where the Fair Work Ombudsman investigated various underpayment reports in relation to students on visas and the Ombudsman had found that these students were only allowed to work 20 hours a week um, because of their visa and they were being paid for working 20 hours a week but in actual fact they were working you know 40, 50 hours a week um, and I think there were actually reports of employers threatening to contact immigration because those visa holders were helping the Fair Work Ombudsman or being part of that that investigation and inquiry so as part of that um, the inquiry found that these 7-Eleven franchisees had been deliberately falsifying records to disguise what was effectively an underpayment of wages and th this was back in 2014, 2015, so it was a while ago, but th at that point, the Fair Work Ombudsman found that 35% of contraventions identified by the Ombudsman, so this is generally, not just 7-Eleven, um, involved visa holders, and 42% of matters taken to court related to allegations of serious non-compliance invo involving visa holders. So, you know, in that case, 7-Eleven entered into a um, compliance deed with the Ombudsman and they changed their payroll systems and time recording systems and other government governance measures such as only um, paying people electronically and that deed has, you know, led to some real improvements of, of rights of employees. So 
I just thought I'd mention that because it shows historically this this has been underpayment of migrant workers has been a really serious issue um, and concern. And last year, the Ombudsman announced its um, priorities for this current uh, or last financial year, and um, they continue to include um, enforcing wage laws to ensure that vulnerable workers, including visa holders and young workers, um, are being protected. So it continues to be something that the Fair Work Ombudsman um, is focused on, um, as they should be. They're quite it's significant fun. numbers, aren't they, Ali? In yeah, terms they're of the huge. Proportion. Yes. And, you know, it's it's extraordinary because the employers that are uh, sponsoring foreign workers are required, as I said, not only to make those declarations, but they need to make sure that the employee has is being employed on equivalent terms to their Australian uh, colleagues and, and uh, other employees. So it's it's disappointing that there's this discrepancy there, but good to hear that the Ombudsman is all over it. Yeah, and I'll go through some more cases later, but they're really very sad and sometimes very blatant um, what employers um, are doing and the Ombudsman is, is all over it and there are, you know, constantly changes to laws to try and deal with this and, and protect these really vulnerable, sometimes vulnerable, I guess some are not, um, but a lot are. Um, so, so yeah, there's a whole lot of rights that visa holders will have under the, the Fair Work Act. And another example is that they're able to bring unfair dismissal claims. So if their employment is dismissed, um, they will be able to bring a claim with the Fair Work uh, Commission alleging that it was unfair if they've um, worked either six months or 12 months, depending on how big the business is. Um, and if they're a permanent employee and some casuals can bring unfair dismissal claims. But I thought I'd just pop that case on the slide up and talk about it just to demonstrate that visa holders also can make these sorts of claims. So uh, in this case, the applicant was employed as a cook and um, he was sponsored by the respondent on a 457 visa, which I understand might have changed now. Um, but at the time, that's what it was. Um, and he was called into work one day and the and was told that the business had been sold and that the purchaser of the business couldn't sponsor the applicant and he had to finish up that day. He then asked some questions about some unpaid entitlements and he was told that the business's accountant would contact him. And that was the end of it. That didn't happen. The applicant turned up to the restaurant one day to ask about the, the amounts he hadn't been paid and he was told to leave or the police would be called. So, you know, really sad scenarios um, and he brought an unfair dismissal claim against um, the employer and the Fair Work Commission obviously and rightly said that just like a local employee this person was able to make an unfair dismissal claim and they looked into whether there was a valid reason for the termination and the Commission said there was not but interestingly the Commission also said it was particularly harsh that the employee was dismissed when they were one week away from being eligible for permanent residency. Um, and the dismissal meant that either need to find another sponsor or face deportation. So given the commission found the dismissal was unfair, they had to consider the remedy, um, which can be reinstatement, but they found for the visa reasons that that wasn't um, appropriate. And so the Fair Work Commission ordered the employer to pay the most amount of compensation that you're allowed to in that jurisdiction, and that's 26 weeks pay or six months pay, which was about $27,000 for this employee. So 
I think it's important to remember that obviously visa holders will have access to these sorts of claims, but you know, if, if an employee is on a visa, that could be looked quite closely by the commission to weigh up whether or not a dismissal was fair or unfair. And so it's something that if you do, you know, have a concern with, with a visa holder's performance or conduct, you need to terminate them. It's something that you need to turn your mind to. What's what's the status of their visa and what's the impact going to be? Um, so I've really just spoken about the Fair Work Act. There's other laws that um, visa holders will have um, entitlements under, so health and safety laws, discrimination laws, et cetera. So really it's like any other, you know, non-visa worker um, when you're considering those, those declarations. I also just wanted to quickly talk about some recent legislative changes or proposed changes. Um, as I said earlier, there's been a lot in this space and I think there's going to continue to be over the next year or so. Um, the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill came in last year and it had a lot of changes, lots of different areas, enterprise agreements, flexible work arrangements. I'm sure everyone's sick of hearing about it. Um, but a lot of those changes were um, aimed to improve job security. Uh, and one of the ways that the government thought that um, job security can be improved is to limit the use of fixed term contracts. So a fixed term contract is one that says it ends on a particular date. Um, and the Fair Work Act has now been amended um, to limit the use of those sort of contracts, but it will only come into effect on the 6th of December this year, so not yet in effect. But those changes limit the use of fixed term contracts in that um, they can't be for a period of um, two or more years and they can't be extended more than once and some other limitations. And if an employer enters into a contract which offends those provisions, the contract will basically have no effect and the person will be an ongoing employee. If there's disputes about um, fixed term contract then the Fair Work Commission can, can look into it and mediate and if the parties agree, arbitrate. There are also various exceptions to the rules. So if someone's a high income earner, so they earn over 167,500, then these rules won't apply to them. If the employee has specialised skills, then it might not apply to them. Um, or if the employer is reliant on some government funding for the role, then again, this might not apply to them. But one of the exceptions that is not listed is anything to do with um, people on visas. So, you know, this change could be relevant if a business does tend to employ people um, on visas for a specific period of time. But Deb, in your experience, do employers tend to employ visa holders on fixed or maximum term contracts or do they tend to be ongoing? This would only really probably be relevant if they were on a temporary visa, such as a subclass 482. Uh, and in my experience, they're not put on fixed contracts. They, Because they need to be, as I mentioned earlier, have the equivalent terms and conditions as an Australian employee, most employers just tend to use the standard uh, employment contract that they have. And uh, I think this probably helps in the sense that one of the things that we need to show at the nomination stage is that it's a genuine position and that it'll be actually performed. And so if there, there does need to be an extension, a further visa applied for, then they can stay on the same visa and we use that to say this is a genuine position they've been doing it for all of this this period of time uh, and then I think that also would address that particular issue now that 
there has been this legislative change or reform in terms of that fixed term contract uh, consideration uh, because, yes, the visa may expire and obviously you need work rights, but we would just apply for a new visa then. Uh, otherwise, that would require, again, that, that extension. Yeah. Um, but then if there are limitations to that, that's going to have implications down the track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the fixed-term um, contract changes might not be so relevant to visa holders depending on how employers are employing them, but obviously could be relevant to any other employee that um, that they do have if you're using fixed-term contracts. Um, just quickly, some other bills. Uh, the Protecting Worker Entitlements was passed earlier this year. Um, I think that sort of just plugged some loopholes, really, um, because as I've said, migrant workers um, really have the same rights and entitlements um, as other employees working in Australia. And so this changed was just to clarify that those workers, employees on visas, continue to have rights under the Fair Work Act, even if um, their migration status under the Migration Act, or regardless of their status under the Migration Act. So if they've breached the condition of their visa, if they don't have work rights, if they don't have a right to be in Australia under the Migration Act, it doesn't mean that they therefore don't have any rights under the Fair Work Act. So as I said, I think that was just sort of plugging a bit of a hole there. Um, and the final bill I've got on the screen is the cl Closing Loopholes Bill that was introduced to Parliament um, earlier this month. Um, and the report to the Senate isn't due till next February, so we're not going to see this go any further until at least then. Um, it's got lots of changes under it as well, but for these purposes, um, one that I just wanted to mention was criminalising wage theft. Uh, under this bill, the criminalisation of wage theft would apply to all employers who intentionally engage in conduct that results in an underpayment. So this isn't going to apply to underpayments that are accidental or inadvertent or based on a genuine mistake. It does have to be um, an intentional underpayment. Um, but offending this provision would be punishable by a maximum of 10 years imprisonment as well as a fine. And the fine would be the greater of either three times the underpayment or for an individual, $1.5 million or for a body corporate, $7.8 million. So I thought that that was an important possible change um, to mention in the context of what we are talking about and going to continue to talk about. Um, but as I said, that is still a bill and it's not going to be considered further until really early next year. So we'll see where that goes. But I think it has got a fair bit of support. So I imagine that would get through to some extent. Okay, so Ellie, we've had a question about student oh, visas yeah. and other temporary visas and and as you were speaking about all of that, uh, I'm assuming that the question's really targeted in terms of um, what the the requirements are in terms of uh, compliance. all all workers in Australia, regardless of their visa status, migration status, are protected by the workplace. Uh, provisions so it doesn't matter if they're on a um, temporary visa the fixed contract uh, similarly I would I would say Ali it just it doesn't matter what visa you're on it's applicable yeah that's right yeah. there's no exception to any sort of visa which I think some some people just in commenting on these changes have um, thought is surprising so maybe it's something we will see but for now there's no exception 
um, for being on any particular visa. Um, so, Deb, are there any other issues that employers need to be aware of under Australian laws when employing foreign workers? Yes. Uh, I'm just going to mention a couple of them here. We've also had a question in our chat box regarding visa costs. So we're going to get to that in the next section. Hopefully that will answer the question there. Um, but in terms of some um, sort of high level obligations under the Migration Act that I think all employers should know is that there are obligations regardless of whether the employer is the visa holder as sponsor or not. So whether you have sponsored the employee or whether they have uh, been employed separately from your sponsorship, uh, there are obligations. So the key ones are that you cannot, and this is any person, so that's why I'm stressing that it doesn't need to be the business sponsor, the employer uh, as a sponsor, um, but any person allows an unlawful non-citizen to work or refers an unlawful non-citizen uh, for work, that um, is a breach of the Act. So that basically means any um, person who doesn't have a visa. So they could have come into Australia on a tourist visa and it's, it's expired or on some other work visa it's expired, they haven't left, they don't have any uh, lawful status, if you allow them to work or refer them to work, uh, then that's a breach of the Act. Similarly, and I've just added in the word lawful there just to, to make the distinction, but a non allowing a non-citizen to work or referring a non-citizen for work in breach of the um, non-citizen's visa conditions. So an example is, of this is where there might be some sort of condition on their visa that doesn't permit them to work. So for example, a visitor visa, tourist visa, there is a no work condition on there. So if you allow a tourist to work, that's a breach of their visa conditions. Uh, similarly, a subclass 482 temporary skill shortage visa, the conditions on that visa are that they only, that the person only works for the employer who sponsored them and only in the occupation for which they were nominated and the visa was granted. So allowing that person who does have work rights to work for a different employer or work in a different occupational position in the business uh, would be a breach of those visa conditions. So it's always important to check the visa entitlement verification online system a system which is otherwise known as Vivo, uh, I would recommend that you register your business for Vivo if you are seeing that you've got a few foreign workers coming through uh, so that you can actually check whether they have work rights to start with and then whether there are any conditions that are uh, would prevent them from working for you. Don't rely on the letter, the grant letter. I would make that recommendation strongly. Please rely on Vivo, which would be current. The grant letter, I suggest not relying on it because they may have since had a new visa since the grant of that particular letter. Alternatively, they could have had the visa cancelled. That's not going to be seen on the, um, on the grant letter. It's important to do that because 
the the act makes these particular provisions an offence, both in uh, civil uh, penalties and criminal offences. Uh, so um, that can be particularly serious, obviously. There is a defence if you take reasonable steps at reasonable times to verify that the person has work rights. And this involves A, checking vivo, uh, and that's specifically stated in the Act, uh, but also checking any documents that can confirm that they are able to, to work in Australia. So that would be having um, checking that they've got Australian citizenship or an Australian passport or a New Zealand passport uh, that would allow them to, to work in Australia. Uh, the other things to, to bear in mind and the reason why it's helpful to check Vivo as well is you may have somebody apply for your business uh, as an employee who may have a subclass 482 visa. Now, as I said earlier, that has conditions that you only work for the employer who sponsored you and only in the position for which you were sponsored. But the person who might be applying might be what's called a secondary applicant. So it could be the spouse or the child of, of somebody who was sponsored under the 482 and they don't have those conditions in terms of work. So while their grant letter might say, and even Vivo would say their sponsor, unless the condition they're saying they can't work, um, then, then they can be employed in that sense. So we need to distinguish between the type of applicant if they're the primary applicant or the secondary applicant. Um, so, you know, for the, for the 482, for example, uh, um, the primary applicant can't have a side hustle like in the gig economy, uh, doing anything else other than working for the particular sponsor, but that applicant's um, spouse or, or child or whoever is coming in under that same visa would be free to work in whatever place that they can. So I think they're, they're probably amongst other um, obligations and some of them we're going to talk about shortly regarding visa costs. Uh, there are a couple of the key ones that I'll bear in mind uh, under the, the Migration Act because that will affect you regardless of whether you're the sponsor or not. Yeah, and good segue, I think, to the, the visa costs, and we did have a question about that. Um, so I understand that migration law says that certain costs can't, can't be recovered, but some might be. Can you talk to me, talk us through that and what can and can't be recovered under the Migration Act? Yeah, so um, there are two key provisions uh, in, in particular that uh, tend to frame what can and can't be. Uh, and they're under the regulations and also the Migration Act. Uh, under the regulations, an approved work sponsor is prevented from recovering, transferring or taking action that will result in another person paying for certain costs in relation to sponsorship, nomination and recruitment. So that means not only the visa applicant, but anyone else that is they're trying to pass the costs onto. So they're the key things there, sponsorship, nomination and recruitment. So that means the costs of the sponsorship and nomination charges, the migration agents costs associated with it, the Skilling Australians funds levy that I spoke to you about earlier, um, any 
migration agent fees or legal costs associated with uh, sponsorship monitoring and recruitment costs and any pre-agreed costs that are related to attracting a potential um, applicant. So anything that's the responsibility of the employer is a is a big no-no. Under the Act, um, that also prohibits a person from asking or receiving a benefit in return for a sponsorship-related event, even if the sponsorship-related event doesn't occur. So a benefit is defined as a deduction of an amount from wages, anything, a payment uh, of valuable consideration, real or personal property, some sort of advantage uh, or a gift or a service. And a sponsorship-related event is a range of events relating to sponsorship and nomination, maintaining the sponsorship and nomination and maintaining the person's employment. So I've just popped up on um, this, this slide some scenarios that may be considered contraventions and some that may not be, and these are pulled directly from government policy. So the first uh, box there is if a sponsor tells a job applicant that they will nominate them for a visa only if the job applicant pays the sponsor a lump sum upfront, that's going to be a contravention of the, uh, the act and, and potentially the regulations because they're trying to pass on or recover a cost that is potentially only something that they would be liable for, but also it's um, requiring, it's some sort of deal, I guess, we'll sponsor you, but only if you pay for it um, and pay us some money. Um, I think a couple of these examples are also came up, Ali, in, in the case one of the cases that you referred to and potentially some others that we might look at, but um, the sponsor advising that the applicant, that they'll terminate their employment unless they return part of their salary and agreeing to nominate a prospective employee only if they agree for wages less than the award and undertake unpaid overtime. So they are all definitely uh, contraventions and these are just examples. They're, it's not an exhaustive list. Um, scenarios that might not be contraventions are that um, the someone will nominate um, an employee if they cover the migration agents um, and statutory government charges. The only thing I would add to that is if it's obviously relating to nomination and uh, sponsorship, that would be carved out. Uh, so that might include, for example, migration agents and statutory government charges relating to the visa application only, and particularly if there are family members uh, that are also going to be included in that. You can also see in the next example regarding the subclass uh, 482 visa, the employee generates profit for the business. That's what they're employed to do. Um, and the business retains the profits while they're just doing work in their ordinary course there. Um, so in summary, I would no recruitment, sponsorship and nomination costs should be passed on to the visa applicant. Um, and if there's anything that's been agreed that the, the employer would cover in order to attract the applicant can similarly not be uh, passed on 
to the applicant. Uh, breaches of these obligations of the regulations um, and the Act, there they are civil penalty provisions, so they're subject to civil penalty orders and um, they're also offences under the Act and they can be quite significant. So, for example, a breach of Section 245AR of the Act, which is seeking that benefit, um, there's it's an offence which has a penalty of two years' imprisonment or 360 penalty units, which is defined by reference to um, the, the, the Crimes Act. So that's currently at, at around $99,000 or it could be both of those, and the civil penalty is 240 penalty units, so $66,000, so quite significant. The only exception is the um, seeking payment of a reasonable amount for uh, professional services, as in somebody's needed to provide a service and there's some sort of reimbursement there, but the employer's going to be um, to bear the evidential burden of proving that. And to add to that and the seriousness with which this is taken by the government is that in addition to those, there is criminal and civil liability applies also to executive officers of bodies corporate for sponsorship related offences and contraventions. If there's, um, if the officer knew or was reckless or negligent as to whether the sponsorship related uh, offence or contravention would be committed and was in a position to influence the conduct of the particular body corporate relating to that and failed to take reasonable steps in relation to the um, the offence or the contravention being committed. Um, so in my experience, employers tend to usually pay all of the visa costs. Um, there are concerns if they leave within a certain period of time but this is more a concern when it's a temporary when it's a permanent visa sorry rather than a temporary visa because the temporary visas require that the employee stay with the particular employer it's a condition of the the visa whereas the permanent visas uh, are um where there's the risk that the employee will once they've got their permanent visa just leave and so that's where uh, employers tend to consider whether there should be at least some sort of uh, requirement that some of the fees relating to the visa uh, are covered by the employee and then they consider under what circumstances. So my recommendation is always if you're concerned about sponsoring someone for a permanent visa in particular, uh, that they will leave as soon as they get that that visa and then you've lost the benefit of, of sponsoring them in the first place get some advice so that we can look at it and the circumstances in that particular situation uh, and we can give you some advice on whether um, you should be seeking to get them to cover the visa costs not the sponsorship nomination uh, but also under what circumstances and then to make sure it's properly documented uh, within the, the provisions of um, permitted uh, things under the Migration Act um, and, and how you might recover that. So Ali, do you think perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about what might be permitted 
in terms of deductions under the Fair Work Act because I understand that it's not as straightforward as simply deducting um, and certainly we wouldn't say it's that simple under the migration requirements either. Yeah, that's right. I think this is just a really complicated area and it's not something we can probably give a general or clear view on because it's going to be very fact dependent and cost dependent and yeah, just what's what's going on with the particular scenario. But I think um, you do need to be aware of some provisions of the Fair Work Act as well. And I'll go through that pretty quickly, just um, given we've only got a couple of minutes left. But the main section I think we need to be aware of is section 324 of the Fair Work Act um, and that relates to permitted deductions and it says that an employer can deduct money from money that is owing to an employee but only in really specific scenarios. One is if the deduction is authorised in writing by the, by the employee and is principally for the employee's benefit noting that that authorization can be withdrawn at any time. So, I mean, the common use of that section is salary sacrifice and that sort of thing, but perhaps it's arguable that some costs might be principally for their, their benefit. Um, so that's one section to consider. Another permitted deduction is where a deduction is authorised under a law. Um, so obviously we've got the Migration Act, but I understand, um, Deb, that the Migration Act doesn't talk about authorising deductions. Um, it, it uses other wording. Is that right? Yeah, there's there's no express authorisation to deduct. So uh, based on all the things and that are in the Act and regulations and what you can and can't recover, I would say that there is nothing really permitting any sorts of deductions along those lines. And so it would be completely subject to the Fair Work Act um, in terms of deductions. Um, but what could be recoverable is subject, obviously, to the Migration Act. Yeah. And then um, the other section I just wanted to mention in the Fair Work Act is that um, you can't, an employer can't directly or indirectly require an employee to spend money um, and pay money to the employer where it's unreasonable and it's for the benefit of the employer. And I won't go through these cases, but there's a lot of them under this section where the employer basically says to the visa holder, I'm going to pay you your wage, but you give me cash back. Or in one particular case, the employer said, give me access to your online banking and I'm going to transfer myself the money. Um, there's quite a lot of cases like that, which is really sad. Um, and um, in those cases, often the directors of the business are also personally liable and have penalties um, against themselves as well as the company and having to um, pay back compensation and the underpayments. So, so that's something else that, that is not permitted under the Fair Work Act. Um, we are at time now. So I just want to quickly go um, to the next slide, Deb, just um, some tips for um, employing foreign workers, if, if anyone's able to stay for just a few more minutes. Yeah, I think we've covered most of these things. I think the only um, uh, things that we probably need to highlight here is just allow yourself enough time if you do need to do any labour market testing uh, and keep the department up to date with any changes in circumstances so that relates to both the employee and the sponsor so change of directors need to notify the department if a visa holder leaves uh, or is terminated need to notify so um, and the other things I think we've covered and if in doubt please feel free to contact us. Yeah and that brings us to our last slide Deb if you just want to really quickly talk through I guess what you might be able to help if anyone anyone needs any assistance in this area. Yeah look I, I think we've probably covered a fair bit as we went through 
um, but just very briefly, we will work with everyone, um, with, with each client to work out the best uh, visa that might assist in terms of meeting the objectives of the business and suiting the, the applicant's circumstances. We'll provide and manage the process, provide advice and manage the process along the way, and including any of the tricky issues, like if there is a, a criminal background uh, that one of the applicants has that we need to get all the information for and address uh, head on uh, right at the outset so that we get minimal request um, for further information. And, and we have had uh, a couple of applicants that did have criminal uh, convictions uh, and arrests that we've managed to get visas for. Um, and then there's any other issues that might come up in the workplace that we can easily uh, provide information and advice about. Um, and then we'll prepare all the applications as well, provide all of that advice, but we can also take you through if anything does need to, um, to be reviewed or um, go through the, the court process, we can do that. Um, as Ali mentioned at the outset, I'm also in dispute resolution. So uh, as a litigator, we'll be able to take that right through, but hopefully we'll never need to do that um, for you. So, but the offerings are there right from application um, right through to, to all of the um, required services that you might need. So I think that brings us to the end of the presentation. So thank you everyone for uh, joining us today and sorry that the end was a little bit rushed, but I think we've probably covered everything during the course of the, the presentation. Uh, we'll be sending a thank you uh, shortly following the, the presentation that we'll have a copy of the recording and we'll also have a link to the white paper in case you're interested in reading that. Um, but by all means, if you've got any other questions uh, about any of the things we've discussed today, please feel free to reach out and hope to see you next time.